0: You're going to love this. Just love it.
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of The Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up, Bradblog legal analyst Ernest Canning explains the history of why Americans are still paying far more for prescription drugs than any other developed nation in the world, and what one state is doing about it. But first, election security expert Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance on voting system security breaches in Georgia and other states perpetrated by Republican election officials that were exposed by her long-running lawsuit to force Georgia to to move to verifiable voting systems yes, going,
2: going back to where my memory strays to the southern ways of my youth for yesterday. Feels like we never left. Yeah. Welcome back Here to the Bradcast. The Brad Friedman oh. from BradBlog.com. Will we ever get out of Georgia? Back in May of this year, we were the first broadcast outlet, I believe, to break the news about an otherwise unreported breach of voting system hardware and software by Trump supporting Republicans at the Board of Elections office in Coffee County, Georgia a rural Republican-leaning county about 200 miles south of Atlanta. The news came about thanks to a recorded phone call from one of those Trump-supporting MAGA election deniers, an Atlanta businessman uh, by the name of Scott Hall, who, for reasons that are still not entirely clear to me, called the plaintiff in a long-running lawsuit against Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and pretty much confessed the entire plot to that plaintiff, Marilyn Marks, of the Coalition of Good Governance. Her group, uh, after successfully winning their lawsuit to ban Georgia's 100% unverifiable, nearly 20-year-old touchscreen voting systems made by Diebold some years earlier, has long been challenging Secretary Raffensberger's ill-considered scheme to replace those old touchscreens with newer unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by Dominion. Marks, a longtime frequent guest on this program, was smart enough to record that call from Scott Hall, including his confession, essentially, that he helped to fund a bunch of election deniers to fly into Coffee County, Georgia, to make unlawful copies of the voting system's highly sensitive software, which is also used, thanks to Raffensperger's mandate, in every single county in the battleground state of Georgia not to mention uh, almost a dozen other states around the country. Here's what some of that call sounded like, and you can hear Marilyn's amazement in response to what Scott Hall was telling her. You know, I'm the guy that chartered the jet
3: to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect
2: all of those computers. I went down there, we scanned every freaking ballot You know, the same people that went up to Michigan,
3: okay, and did all that forensic stuff on the computers, and they sent their team down to Coffee County, Georgia, and they scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single ballot.
0: They imaged the hard drives? Yes. How in the world did you get permission to do that?
3: We basically had the entire elections committee there. Okay, and they said we give you permission. Go for it.
2: Oh, okay. Wow. The audio from that phone call was included as evidence in Marx's long-running lawsuit against Secretary Raffensperger, which hopes to move the state from unverifiable touchscreen voting systems to verifiable hand-marked paper ballots. After the evidence of that call finally went public, thanks to smart investigative reporting from folks like Emma Brown at Washington Post, Kate Brumbach at AP, Raffensperger's office claimed that, well, they had known about the breach, sort of, and that the state had been investigating it, sort of. In fact, Marx found no evidence that Raffensberger's office had investigated the matter at all, as she joined us in June to explain on this program uh, and discuss what appeared at the time to be a... Potential cover-up by the Georgia Secretary of State. A cover-up by the man who defied the advice of voting systems and cybersecurity experts to choose new, unverifiable touchscreen voting systems made by Dominion instead of paper ballot systems. And then, of course, forced every county in the state to use those unverifiable touchscreens at the polling place. The man who, at the same time, has somehow been regarded as a bit of a hero... Because he refused to help Donald Trump steal the 2020 election, as you may recall from that infamous recorded phone call where the disgraced now former president is heard asking Raffensperger to, quote, find just enough votes that would be needed to flip the state that Joe Biden won to a stolen victory for Donald Trump. Since the evidence of the Coffee County voting system breach has come to light, thanks to several national media outlets, including our own, uh, it has incredibly, by the way, been ignored largely by some of Georgia's largest media outlets. But new national reporting has tied the Coffee County breach. To a number of similar ones in other states, including Michigan, Pennsylvania and Nevada, all of which we have now learned appears to have been coordinated by Team Trump and uh, led up by the disgraced Trump attorney, Sidney Powell a lot of incremental evidence of the of the these crimes and and who was involved in them specifically in Coffee County including members of the County Board of Elections itself there and the Coffee County GOP has been pouring out via national media in recent months. On Tuesday, via Washington Post and CNN and AP, we learned that security camera surveillance video outside of the Coffee County Board of Elections Revealed a whole passel of these folks arriving at the office on January 7, 2021, the day after Trump's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. They were arriving there, as Scott Hall suggested in that recorded phone call, to make unlawful copies of the county's voting systems. A number of these people had testified previously in the coalition's lawsuit that they were not at the Board of Elections that day day, or they knew nothing about what happened. Further surveillance video from subsequent days uh, after January 7 of 2021 shows that others like Doug Logan, remember him, the dude who's now defunct company Cyber Ninjas? later oversaw that joke of a post election forensic audit in Maricopa County Arizona the one that would that confirmed Joe Biden's 2020 victory over Donald Trump in that battleground state well that Doug Logan is seen on the surveillance video coming into the Coffee County Georgia Elections Board over several days why Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis has taken notice of all of this. She has begun to include investigation of this incident and the fake electors plot in Georgia in her criminal conspiracy investigation of Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election in the Peach State. But all the while, Secretary of State Raffensperger's office appears to have taken little or no action despite... Suggesting otherwise, for example, as Washington Post reported on Tuesday in its story on the surveillance video, quote, in spring of 2021, after Coffee County Elections Board Director Misty Hampton resigned, she was the one who allegedly allowed these MAGA folks into the office to copy the software. The cyber ninja guy, Doug Logan's business card, was found on her desk by her successor, James Barnes. Barnes sent a copy of the card to the secretary of state's office, expressing alarm in light of the fact that the Justice Department had raised concerns about the ballot review led by cyber ninjas in Arizona. That, according to an email obtained by The Post. An investigator in the secretary of state's office was directed to follow up with county officials and, quote, verify what, if any, contact cyber ninjas had with election equipment, according to emails. But Barnes said in a sworn deposition in Marilyn Mark's coalition lawsuit that state officials never contacted him at all. Well, now, thanks to that lawsuit, we know that, in fact, Doug Logan made repeated visits to the Coffee County offices for hours at a time, according to that surveillance video. What was he doing there? And what is going on here overall? Why is Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his office seemingly covering all of this up? And why is Marilyn Marks a plaintiff in a lawsuit against the Secretary of State seemingly doing all of the investigation that Raffensperger should have and could have done long ago. She'll join us momentarily to answer some of those questions, but just one more point I want to get on record. In late August, the AP's Kate Brumbach reported in a story on all of this that, quote, Ryan Germany... A general counsel for the uh, Georgia Secretary of State's office said in a declaration filed on August 2 that the office opened an investigation in mid-March and brought in an expert to perform a forensic inspection of the Coffee County election server. The next steps, he said, are to complete the forensic investigation and interview witnesses. So Presumably, uh, that means the office opened an investigation in mid-March of 2022, and yet the following month, in April of this year, at an event at the Carter Center in Atlanta... Supposedly on, quote, restoring confidence in American elections, Raffensperger's top uh, deputy, Gabe Sterling, who famously after the 2020 election, you may remember him, he went before the cameras to angrily call on Trump supporters to stop their harassment of Georgia election workers before someone gets killed, remember that guy? Well he was at the Carter Center and he referenced the Coffee County breach by saying on April 29th of this year at the Carter Center that it never happened
1: We had claims even recently there was people saying we went to Coffee
2: County and we we imaged everything there's no evidence of any of that it didn't happen. no evidence of that really so to summarize, AP reported that Raffensperger's general counsel, Ryan Germany, claimed they opened an investigation in mid-March into Coffee County. But in late April, Raffensperger's top lieutenant, Gabriel Sterling, says no evidence. It didn't happen. And now videotaped evidence gathered via public records requests and uh, subpoenas, thanks to Marilyn Marks, shows that it did absolutely happen and the evidence for it is plain as day based on videotaped proof from more than a year and a half ago that apparently raffensperger's office never even bothered to try and obtain finally however the uh, good news i guess after all of this raffensperger and the georgia bureau of investigations are reportedly said to finally be investigating so who has Raffensperger subpoenaed in this case? Scott Hall, the Atlanta businessman who confessed the entire plot to Marilyn Marks by phone? How about Misty Hampton, the Coffee County election official who let the Trumpers make illegal count, uh, copies of the county's voting system software? How about Kathy Latham, the county's Republican Party chair, who testified that, uh, well, she was only there that day for, quote, just a few minutes and she couldn't remember any other details, at least until evidence, video evidence this week appears to show that she was at the Coffee County Board of Elections. She was the one greeting the Sidney Powell hired tech- technicians uh, before spending several hours there herself with them. How about Sidney Powell? Was she subpoenaed or disgraced cyber ninja Doug Logan? Nope. The first subpoena for documents and testimony that appears to have been sent out by Brad Raffensberger's office went to, wait for it, Marilyn Marks. Joining us now is Marilyn Marks, longtime expert advocate for free and fair elections and champion of election integrity and government transparency as executive director of the nonpartisan nonprofit coalition for good governance Marilyn. It has been a bunch of months, but welcome back to the broadcast.
0: Well, thank you so much, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. I always love doing this. I, it's I, been a bunch of months, but y- some things haven't changed. It, well, some things <laughs> haven't, but a lot of things have. And well, I, you know, have they? I
2: had, to, I had to skip a lot of details there, Marilyn, uh, because all of this has, uh, you know, a lot of material has come to light in recent days. Thanks to you, I should underscore, but before I get to some of my questions, did I screw up any uh, any particular points there? Did I miss any big points that need to be mentioned here? It
0: was all perfect. It okay. was better better than any report we have heard yet. <laughs> okay,
2: good, glad to hear. Now I'm I'm certainly interested in what the hell the Trumpers were doing there when they were copying the copying the voting system software. In Coffee County, as we have seen elsewhere in the state and in Pennsylvania and Colorado, uh, where, by the way, listeners may recall Mesa County clerk Tina Tina Peters. She's now facing 10 criminal charges in Colorado for having done the same thing. But I'm also interested, perhaps even more interested, in Raffensperger's apparent cover up of all of this. He is... Uh, Marilyn, after all, he's running for re-election this year, presuming, uh, presumably uh, overseeing his own election as Secretary of State. Am I right to call this a cover-up by Raffensperger at this point? And if so, why is he covering it up from uh, what you've been able to learn through the evidence you've gathered?
0: Well, it, it certainly doesn't look like a sincere effort to have a diligent Investigation. Let's compare this to what's gone on in Michigan and in Colorado, mm-hmm. as you did. You know, immediately when these things were found out last year that Tina Peters had a copying of the EMS, mm-hmm. and then in Antrim, Michigan, when the officials there found out, the attorney general, the state election official, went after the perpetrators who did that. And we're looking at Michigan right now mm-hmm. where there's a special prosecutor with nine targets. Mm -hmm. nine people who is targeted five of them are involved in georgia but none of them have even been interviewed in georgia their names have not surfaced other than through us and you know the the secretary does not seem to want to know secretary and the state election board state election board actually has the authority Mm -hmm. to investigate neither seem to be terribly interested And I think the point that you made about this video, a lot of people think this video came from an investigation by the state. Uh Oh, no. Oh, no. They have not even asked for it. Wow. Wouldn't Investigation 101, wouldn't the investigators have long ago pulled the video surveillance
2: tapes? If you were doing a real investigation, which they do not appear uh, to be doing. And just to be clear, Marilyn, so you mentioned uh, the investigations going on in Michigan, in Colorado, some charges already brought in uh, in Colorado. Essentially, what they're investigating in that case, in in those states, is the same thing that happened here in Georgia exactly, correct?
0: It is important. It's Mm -hmm. very important. It's very serious. But Mm -hmm. not nearly as serious as Georgia. Because one, those are on a county by county basis. Mm-hmm. It's not a uniform system mm-hmm. across across uh, Colorado and Michigan. Mm-hmm. They don't have uniform programming where one person does all the programming of the equipment, and they work on hand marked paper ballots and have audits. Something Georgia doesn't do. Mm-hmm. So the risk in Georgia, although the kind of the same technology issues mm-hmm. happened, the risk in Georgia is a hundredfold, and that's something, Brad, that you get, but I will tell you the rest of the news organizations are just not getting that yet.
2: And and that's because uh, they use the same systems uh, Raffensburger forces all of the counties to use these very same systems, so... Uh, as and then we,
0: centrally programs every mm-hmm. machine.
2: And, and, so, and we've, we've discussed it before, so is that, what makes it so alarming that these folks are making copies of this software? Is that because it will now give them the opportunity to uh, game the systems in future elections in these other counties in the states and even in other states around the country that use the same systems?
0: Well, I think Philip Stark, on your program just about a year ago, described it as having a working model if you're going to be a bank robber, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That you've got a working model now to test your intrusion into the system, to test the malware that you you can create, to mm-hmm. test all the diff- many different ways that you can intrude into the system. And they now have a working model. And remember, in George's case, George is operating with touchscreens where the hacks that may happen the malware that may be deployed cannot be detected. Right. After Different than an optical scanner.
2: Correct. Uh, uh, handmarked uh, uh, paper ballots. And, right. Uh, but, I mean, so is this, is this why they were doing what they were doing? Were they trying to get this information so they could game elections? They claim that oh, they're trying to prove there was fraud in 2020.
0: Well, you know, um, we don't know their motivations. And their motivations may have been on many different levels, and we will probably never really know all of their motivations, Brad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, certainly some of them wanted to see, even at that late date, Biden never get inaugurated. You know, they were looking for ways to still try to seize the voting machines. Mm -hmm. And if you recall, the draft executive orders Mm -hmm. that Trump, of course, never was able to sign, many people don't know, that Coffee County was mm-hmm. one of the three counties mentioned in that draft executive order yep. trying to seize the voting machines yep. as justification for the seizing of the nation's voting machines. Coffee County, as you pointed out, is a tiny little county. Mm-hmm. You know, every single vote could have been counted wrong and it wouldn't have mattered. Right. <laughs> but what they got was they got the software for the entire state. By coming into Coffee
2: County, so that clip of uh, Gabe Sterling that I played uh, from the Carter Center, sort of sniffing at the notion that there was a software breach in in Coffee County, uh, claiming quote it never happened. Uh, he is, you know, sort of the right hand man of 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 uh, of of That was a month after the lead attorney in Raffensburger's own office says that they began an investigation. And then right. a month later, he says, oh, it never. we looked into it, it never happened. So was Sterling lying in his comments on that panel at the Restoring Confidence in American Elections uh, 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 panel at Carter Center? Or did he not know? Or his office knew but didn't tell him? What is going on there?
0: It's hard to know, but we do know he was not telling the truth. And whatever was happening, he would have known about it. He is very, very tied to the daily operations. But, um, Brad, as you know, about every week, starting in March, mm-hmm. I was writing the Coffee County Board of Elections public records request saying, have you heard anything from the secretary
3: mm-hmm.
0: or the state election board? Send me any correspondence you have. Every week, they would roll their eyes at me and say, no, it's just like we told you last week.
2: We haven't heard a word. You know, I mentioned that uh, the the new guy who came in to run the Coffee County elections noticed that business card from the Cyber Ninjas guy, Doug Logan. Yes. He's seen repeatedly coming in. We we don't yet know why they were doing this, why they were coming back day after day. uh, But... This information from this videotape, we need to underscore, Raffensperger could have asked for this over a year and a half ago. Yes. Uh, That's when it happened, and it's only now coming out this week in uh, September of 2022. Now, Marilyn Marks, why are you being subpoenaed? As part of (laughs) Raffensperger's investigation into all of it. I I mean, well, you do have information. Scott Hall, that guy, uh, called you. You recorded it. You have information of of sort of, you know, how all of this was kicked off. But couldn't Raffensperger have asked you for any documents or testimony? Well,
0: certainly. And as a plaintiff, we have obligations to continue to supply the other side with the, you know, relevant discovery documents, mm-hmm. which we, of course, will do. The only reason to, to subpoena me was to try to continue their, it's really a ridiculous kind of argument that, oh, this is all Marilyn Marx's fault, <laughs> that Marilyn Marx should have told them about, you know, the Scott Hall phone call far earlier in, in his, his, mm-hmm. as one of my friends said, yeah, then they could have started doing nothing even earlier. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, they're, t- they're trying to pretend that they had no evidence, they had no reason to, uh, to know anything, and that somehow they are way behind because they just didn't know about this. Well, obviously, even if, if you believe that, which is complete nonsense, but, you know, we played this for Gabe Depo- Dave Sterling's deposition mm-hmm. on February the 24th. They did not pick up the phone at that point. You would think they would and say, hey, tell us everything you know because we need to investigate. No, they stalled and stalled. And even during my deposition, Mm -hmm. which occurred a few weeks later, I tried to talk about Coffee County. And every time I would try to raise Coffee County in my deposition, they would decide that they don't want to talk about that. They'd talk about something else. Mm -hmm. So they have avoided this. Back in um, December of 2020 Mm and January of 2021, Mm -hmm. the Secretary of State was conducting an investigation down in in Coffee County. You know, um, Misty and some of the other things she had been up to, including leaving her password for her server, Mm -hmm. the EMS server, sitting out in public and then posting it on the Internet. Well, you would think that they would say, you know what? Given that the doors have been unlocked and she's posted the password on the internet, then we should look at the surveillance video and see if any bad guys have been in here
2: but you they would, didn't yeah. you know
0: no it has been they have looked the other way, and at some point you have to wonder were they purposely doing nothing
2: It sure seems like it i uh, you know i i don't understand why i mean it seems frankly. Like, they knew about all this information because you've been sharing it with them in your lawsuit, but it wasn't until, am I right to, to say it wasn't yeah. until heat from the media finally forced them to do something about this? Uh,
0: we believe that is true. And certainly, Judge Totenberg, as we kept going to Judge Totenberg in our case, mm-hmm. she kept asking them, well, when did you take this server? Did you try to get Dominion to help you with this? Mm-hmm. And she kept asking them questions, and... They didn't have answers for them. I'm sure they were feeling some heat from that. They were certainly feeling heat from the press. They were getting calls all the time. And apparently they were telling reporters for months, oh, Marilyn Marx is making this up. There is nothing to anything she's saying. And no reporter worth their salt is paying any attention wow. to her. Wow.
2: Wow. Uh, well, I guess I was paying attention to to you, so that's uh, maybe. Anyway, uh, Marilyn, <laughs> do, you, you, do you know has has anyone else other than you been subpoenaed uh, in Raffensperger's no. investigation?
0: <laughs> Not that we know of, no. All of these I'm, people, I'm the one there was that like they're targeting for retaliation.
2: Well, there was like half a dozen people that are seen on that videotape going in and unlawfully copying software and lying to you about it in in in, in their depositions in your lawsuit. Those people have not been subpoenaed
0: yet. No, they haven't been subpoenaed. Now it could be, it could be that the GBI who is getting involved Georgia uh, Bureau
2: of Investigation sure, yes, yes, go ahead.
0: <laughs> that, that now we are aware in the last few days they have begun to set up appointments but you know Fonnie Willis um, mm-hmm. is not letting any grass grow under her feet she immediately started sending subpoenas you ha- know it took it took her about 20 minutes yeah. <laughs> and it has taken the um, state election board and the secretary 18 months.
2: And she's not even close, uh, by the way, really, to Coffee County. She's up in uh, Fulton County, about 200 miles to the north, although some of the people, uh, actually, I think one of them, uh, Kathy Latham, if I'm not mistaken, seen on the uh, surveillance videotape, wasn't she one of the fake electors?
0: She was one of the (laughs) fake electors, Um, but as well, Sullivan Strickler, the firm that came in and copied Uh all of the software, they uh, have their offices in fulton county Ah. in
2: atlanta
0: so she has direct nexus right there. good
2: good all right has has raffensperger sat for an under oath deposition in your case against him yet marilyn no
0: he he has not that's something very difficult to get
2: i have to get out here so very quickly how long at this point is your case expected to take it's been going on for years now any sense of when it actually might be decided by a judge if not before 2022 then maybe 2024
0: Well, let's hope it's by 2024, but certainly with this kind of evidence, Brad, we should see this thing coming to an end. By any reasonable um, means, the Secretary of State and the State Election Board should be stepping up to say, okay, you've made your point, let's settle this thing.
2: Yeah, by any reasonable means, you're talking about Georgia. Marilyn, (laughs) um, last question, would the, uh, as I said, Raffensperger, he's running for re-election this November. He'll be overseeing his own election on these uh, unverifiable systems that he seems to be playing both sides of. There's a, a Democratic nominee for secretary of state in Georgia this November. B. Nguyen is her name. Yes. She's running against Raffensburger. Do you have any reason to believe that she would be more sympathetic to your lawsuit seeking to move the state to verifiable handmarked paper ballots if she were to win in November?
0: Uh, yes, she has said um, that she believes that certainly handmarked paper ballots with audits is the way to go, and so she has campaigned on that point, and um, we, we are pleased that candidates are out there campaigning on that point. We just wish Raffensperger were, too.
2: Marilyn, the story will continue. I can guarantee that. Marilyn Marks is uh, the executive director of the Coalition for Good Governance. You can find them at coalitionforgoodgovernance.org. And as you're reading about this story now, finally being picked up in the rest, in some of the rest of the media, please remember, any new information coming out from this case is generally thanks to Marilyn Marks. You can follow her, and you should follow her on the Twitters at Marilyn Marks one and uh, the coalition is also on, on Twitter, Coalition Good GV, Coalition Good GV. Marilyn, can't thank you enough for all, your, uh, all you're doing and all your good work. It is so important that uh, folks support you and your work. We are mighty grateful for everything you do.
0: Thank you so much, Brad, for following what we do and amplifying it. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Marilyn.
1: Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, Bradblog legal analyst Ernie Canning on Big Pharma's Big Grift and what one state is doing about it. That's still ahead. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Don't touch that dial.
2: Hey, this is Brad here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com. We fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks.
1: You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. I want a new drug. Mm-hmm. when the whole sick.
2: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. A new drug indeed. And by the way, that uh, song from the 80s, Huey Lewis and the News, kind of uh, perfectly sets the stage for where we're going in this conversation. But let's start here. The White House COVID response coordinator said this week that Americans should get their new updated Omicron-specific booster shot no later than Halloween, if at all possible. Speaking on a podcast this week, Dr. Ashish Jha explained that A, Halloween on October 31 is an easy date to remember, but also because B, quote, three weeks after Halloween is Thanksgiving. And there's a lot of travel, and you're seeing family, and you're seeing friends, and a few weeks later, it's the holidays. The
1: idea here is, as you think about the fall and winter, we know respiratory viruses uh, circulate at much higher levels in the fall and winter. It's a really good time to get yourself protected, and even if you yourself are on the low-risk side... You're going to have family and friends you're going to see. You don't want to be the person who gives it to your grandma. You don't want to be the person who gives it to your vulnerable friend who's immunocompromised. Lots of good reasons for people to go get it this fall.
2: True. No one wants to kill grandma. Don't be that person. The new shots from both Pfizer and Moderna, which target both the original COVID strain and now finally Omicron's BA5 and BA4 subvariants are available to a wide swath of Americans who have received their primary vaccination series already. If you have a high risk of severe COVID, for example, you're older than 50, you're immun- immunocompromised, or have other underlying medications. You may want to get the new shot much earlier than Halloween, says Ja. Likewise, if you only recently got a covid vaccine or recovered from a covid infection, you may want to wait a little bit. The CDC says you need to be at least two months out from your last dose of any covid vaccine and should consider waiting three months if you've recently had the virus itself. COVID shots typically take two or three weeks post injection to ramp up to full protection, making Halloween your sort of last chance before the Thanksgiving holiday. That protection tends to last for about three or four months before beginning to wane. Dr. Zha said it's better to get the new shot sooner rather than later, urging people to avoid waiting until November or December if they can as an extra layer of protection that will be badly needed during the fall and winter when immunity from previous vaccines wanes and people spend a lot more time indoors. The weather during those seasons also turns the air cold and dry, making it easier for tiny droplets of the virus to survive in the air when people sneeze and cough or talk. New U.S. cases rose to a then-record high last year in December, with a seven-day average of more than 265,000 cases per day. That mirrored a similar surge in late 2020, So even if you aren't worried about getting the virus yourself, says Ja, uh, it's important to remember that you can still spread it to high-risk loved ones during fall and winter social gatherings. He and the CDC also noted this week that it's just fine to get both the COVID booster and this year's annual flu shot at the same time. Just in case you're wondering, which is what I plan to do myself very soon, Wish me luck. According to New York Times columnist and researcher Zeynep Tufetci, the new so-called bivalent vaccine for covid will provide a better response to the most threatening variants today, but probably to future variations as well, because when the immune system faces different versions of the same virus, it generates broader protections overall, she writes. She describes the availability of the new vaccines as terrific news, noting that, quote, not only will a booster with the new vaccines decrease the likelihood of infection and severe illness and help reduce transmission of the virus. It could also decrease the likelihood of developing long covid, which has continued to plague many who have been infected, even if the infection wasn't fatal. Including many younger victims uh, who, even after no longer testing positive, continue for months to have debilitating systems uh, symptoms. Some marathon runners, for instance, have reported uh, having problems even walking a half a mile after getting sick, and staying sick with long COVID. Due to uh, little fanfare for new availability of these updated vaccines, along with what Tufetchi describes as unfounded skepticism of them, she fears that too few people might get them. And lots of people who need not get sick, suffer or die will, in fact, get sick, suffer or die. For the first time in the pandemic, she notes manufacturers have capitalized on the potential of mRNA technology to begin distributing a covid vaccine that perfectly matches the currently circulated strain of the virus, a feat that had long seemed improbable. So, yes, this is terrific news, at least here in the U.S., where the bivalent version of these uh, vaccines by both uh, Pfizer and Moderna should now be easily available. But in the rest of the world, not only are the new booster shots far less available, so is the original vaccine series, which means no matter how many shots smart Americans continue to receive, we're never really going to actually beat this virus, sadly. But there's a reason that these shots, more than two years into the pandemic, are not available worldwide. As the Brad blog's long-toiling legal contributor, Ernest A. Canning, explained this week at the blog, you will be shocked to learn it has to do with money, specifically pharmaceutical industry profits. Even though the hugely profitable companies like Pfizer and Moderna, who developed these life-saving vaccines, did so thanks to Tens of billions of dollars of government largesse, taxpayer money for R&D, which decades ago would have meant that the government owned the patent rights, the intellectual property rights, so that we would then be able to release the formula for use around the world, which, of course, would make Americans much safer and less likely to uh, die from what we now know to be an otherwise defeatable disease. We should be both relieved and outraged, wrote Canning this past week at Bradblog.com, relieved that earlier this month the CDC and FDA approved a new round of booster shots specifically redesigned to address new variants of the deadly COVID virus. But outraged because despite the expenditure of tens of billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars on research and development, the pharmaceutical industry's refusal to waive its... Gifted patent rights prevented a global rollout of the covid vaccines. In turn, writes Ernie, that refusal resulted in the need for the new booster shots in the first place. We should also be outraged, he says, because the industry's refusal to waive their patent rights, has helped to kill at least 6.5 million people worldwide with no end in sight and outraged because this will, in all likelihood, not be the last newly reconstituted booster shot needed, as at least two-thirds of the world's epidemiologists believe that the failure to provide global vaccinations will give rise to mutations that could render current COVID vaccines ineffective. And yes, the patent rights were, he explains, a gift from the U.S. to the pharmaceutical industry. Who could have guessed it? Joining us now is Ernie Canning, our, as I said, our long-toiling legal analyst and contributor at Bradblog.com. He's also a retired attorney, Vietnam vet, and during the 2016 presidential campaign, a senior advisor to veterans for Bernie. It has been a while, Mr. Canning, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Good to be here. Uh, In addition to this excellent piece, uh, you've got a Brad blog uh, headlined, As COVID Continues, Reagan's Gift to Big Pharma is Still Endangering Global Health. Uh, In addition to that, you recently posted another piece which sort of comes out of the same research that you were doing into the big pharma intellectual property rights and a fascinating, perhaps groundbreaking response to it out here in California by our governor, Gavin Newsom. I want to get to that as well momentarily, Ernie, but... Your latest piece is also fascinating because it sort of explains how we got to this place in this country really only in recent decades where taxpayers give tens of billions to the pharmaceutical companies for R&D. That leads to miracle medicines like the covid vaccine. But even though it was developed on our dime, The big pharma companies, they get to retain the patent and intellectual property rights and profits along with them, which means that the vaccines are not widely available around the globe, which means new variants pop up, which means more people die, which then requires new vaccines and more government money so that we can never really end the pandemic. A pretty good gig, it seems to me. And though Ronald Reagan as you detail, plays a key role here. It it actually, it wasn't always like this, as you found in your research, at least up until 1980 when Jimmy Carter actually changed the rules for how this works. Let's start with Jimmy Carter and his contributions here, and then we'll work our way up to the present day. What did Carter do in 1980 that initially changed the game when it comes to patents and, and IP on stuff developed with the help of government funding?
3: Well, in, in 1980, Congress passed what's called by dole uh Senator Birchby I think, and uh, and Bob Dole were the sponsors of it, mm-hmm. which was a, a, a modest revision of our patent laws. Up until that point, if uh, federal monies were used for the development of any, any new invention, mm-hmm. the patent rights would go to the federal government. Uh, only about 5% of the federal patents that had been accumulated between World War II and 1980 were actually going out into the market. So they wanted... To increase the availability of patents, so they passed this act, which uh, basically said that if a small business, a nonprofit, or a university mm-hmm. develops uh, a product with the use of, of the uh, federal funds for R and D, that the university or, or small business would get the patent, unless they specifically told them in advance that the government, for, for reasons of health and safety, would retain the patent. And they also included what's called march-in rights, which they could go in if there if there was a need and the government could take over the patent. Mm-hmm. And that, that was mainly it's, it's to encourage uh, inventions which are really coming out of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. What changed with Reagan, which makes it so hypocritical, quick quote, he said, we who live in a free market society believe that growth prosperity and ultimately human fulfillment are created from the bottom up not from the government down well in 1987 he turned around and instead of having all the safeguards of buy dole he issued an executive order that no matter how big a company was that we could and how much money was poured in by the federal government for research and development the patent would belong to the giant company which in this case is the pharmaceutical industry and if, if you look at the amount we've been Paying about just in general research, mm-hmm. uh, about twenty-eight billion dollars in pharmaceutical R and D every year. Which over over the span of this and what the value of those patents are, we're really talking trillions of dollars in, in a gift, and, and not just you know tens of billions. Let, um,
2: let me actually let, let me unpack a little bit of, of that. So when Jimmy Carter did what he did in nineteen eighty, it was it sort of meant as an incentive to help. Uh, again, small companies, universities—not necessarily these huge pharmaceutical industries—to uh, invent stuff, and it wasn't just medicine, right? It was just any kind of invention that might have been uh, helped along with with federal R and D funding, correct?
3: Sure. If you if you consider, let's say, a small business, they come up with an idea for solar panels mm-hmm. back in 1980. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be something where if they made the invention that they'd be able to keep it even though the federal government uh, contributed money towards developing it
2: and then reagan comes along 1987 says that anything that gets developed anything that gets invented with government dollars no matter how big the company is no matter how much they might be able to do this research and development themselves they get to keep the patent rights, the intellectual property rights, all the profits that go along with it. He did that in an executive order in 1987?
3: That's correct. It didn't come from Congress. It came from an executive order.
2: And that took away what you described as the uh, in in, uh, the measure signed by Jimmy Carter, the the right of the federal government to say, okay, you get to keep the profits. However, if it's an important invention for a life-saving medicine or something, then things change. Then the government gets to come in and, and uh, keep control of those patents, correct?
3: Well, I don't think it took away the, the limitations that are imposed by Dole mm-hmm. for those small businesses and, and universities, uh-huh. but it ended up being a separate gift for people that weren't covered by which is the huge corporation mm-hmm. of, of basically federal government money, socialism for the rich. Uh-huh. And we poured all that money into it, research and development, but at least we can say that Americans get the benefit of paying ten times as much for prescription drugs as uh, anybody in any other <laughs> single-payer country. So <laughs> that's
2: there's a, there's that. It's quite a benefit. Then we get to, so now let's bring this up to present day. Uh, we get to 2000 and, uh, t- uh, 2020. And uh, COVID comes around, Donald Trump's so-called warp speed uh, program and the development of COVID vaccines for which companies like Pfizer and Moderna received unprecedented uh, billions of dollars to develop in record time. Why why shouldn't we be surprised that, uh, well... I guess Trump was more than happy to give away the store to Big Pharma, but Joe Biden then came in. Can he simply sign an executive order that rolls back Ronald Reagan's, takes back the patent rights, and uh, allows uh, these drugs to be produced around the world so that we can save ourselves, if nothing else, save ourselves here in the U.S.?
3: Well, there's two problems with it. One is that the pharmaceutical industry, uh, as grateful as they were for, these, for this gift, they went and locked in those patent rights in what's called the TRIPS agreement with the uh, World Trade Organization in order to get even a temporary waiver, which, you know, the, the epidemiologists say it's critical that, that we provide this all over the world. Uh-huh. Or if we don't, then what's going to happen is you're going to keep having these new variants come up and, and make the original vaccines uh, uh, antiquated. So in order to get that waiver, uh, you have to have the consent of every member state of the WTO. And uh, that hasn't occurred. And that's why only 18% of the people in, in third world countries have been vaccinated, as opposed to 80% have had initial vaccination in wealthy countries. And the problem is that puts everybody at risk yep. because the new variants then can come along and render what we just got obsolete in another year.
2: Yeah. And not to be too cynical here, of course, but that sure does work out well for the big pharmaceutical companies, doesn't it? Because they they, they then have to put out another round of of vaccines. But how, how do you respond, uh, Ernie, uh, to the argument that, hey, you know, if we don't allow these companies to profit off of their inventions? even if they come about thanks to huge R&D funding investments by the government, that they they won't develop the innovative, life-saving pharmaceuticals that we all need.
3: Well, I I know how Governor Newsom responded. (laughs) Well... He he came up with, you know, California is going to manufacture its own generic insulin.
2: Well, that's the where we're headed here. I'll point, folks, of course, to your fascinating research on this on, on Bradblog.com, on both of these stories, because I think this is the story that actually led you into the, the research into patent and IP issues. California's new plan, just signed by the Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, Will actually put the state now into the business of producing pharmaceuticals itself, in this case, insulin, which you describe as a shot in the arm, if you will, towards socialized medications and the end of patent abuse. So, yeah, give me a quick idea. What, what is our state now doing and just how revolutionary uh, is this or isn't this, at least here in the U.S.?
3: Insulin is a classic case because it, it shows you how the uh, industry manipulates our patent laws. You know, insulin was, was discovered in 1921. Up until about 1980, most of the insulin was from cows and pigs, and then, the researcher uh, developed human insulin, and they started doing that in, in around 1978. Well, mm-hmm. what happens is... The length of a patent is supposed to be limited Mm -hmm. because it's a conflict between you wanting to encourage people to to develop inventions, but then you want the public to be able to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So the longest a patent is supposed to last is 20 years. Well, insulin's been around for over 100 years, and what the industry did was when the patent on human insulin started to uh, reach what they call a patent clip where it was going to expire, mm-hmm. they developed uh, what are called analog insulins. And instead of making the human insulin available, they'd go to the analog insulins, which would know, be brand name, and they, ch- they could charge more money. Mm-hmm. And now that those analogs are starting to, the patents are starting to expire, what they do is they just keep new analog insulins in, mm-hmm. the, uh, in the R&D development thing, even though you know the government's paying for these all the way, and that way they can continue to to bring new insulin and, and keep it uh, forever. Well, because of that kind of abuse, it wasn't until last year, which is 100 years after insulin was discovered, that the FDA first approved a generic insulin, and what Governor Newsom has done is California's going to uh, put in uh, $100 million into the manufacture and distribution to Californians at slightly above cost of their own Mm -hmm. generic insulin. That's their response. The other interesting thing was that the other approach is with the manufactured stuff is to have a single uh, negotiator system, which they have in the VA. But if they had it for the entire country, you could could negotiate the prices. That's where Americans were paying 10 times as much as, as other countries. But even in the other countries people are being ripped off because they keep manufacturing these new uh, analog insulins mm-hmm. and a study by the world health Organization found that there's no significant difference in terms of the clinical value between analog insulin and the human insulin so, and and yet they're coming up with new generations which we don't need
2: so california and the governor said well the hell with that we will just make our make the insulin ourselves we'll sell it for really cheap uh, and we don't have to deal with it. I mean, I know in that in that new law you referenced, the Inflation Reduction Act, in which uh, Democrats had attempted to limit the cost of insulin and no more than thirty five dollars a month for anyone who needed it. But Republicans blocked that measure. So the thirty five dollar a month cap will now only apply to those who have government insurance like Medicare great news of course for folks on medicare but bad news for those with private insurance young people suffering with juvenile diabetes and so forth so california's move sort of uh seems to work around that entirely has this been done before in the u.s either by california or any other state to your knowledge that uh, we're getting no. in the medication business out here in the state
3: actually uh, my research showed that the only other country i could find which is manufacturing its own generic medication, was Cuba. I might back up a minute to what you said about just repealing the Reagan uh, executive order. Yeah. That might work. Uh, President Biden could repeal that order with respect to uh, any new medications or, mm-hmm. or vaccinations. That are not already developed or in the in the pipeline, mm-hmm. it wouldn't work for those that are already existing because you'd have problems not only with the WTO uh, the trade agreements, mm-hmm. but but also with the uh, Fifth Amendment taking clause. These companies relied on mm-hmm. on the, the fact that these were going to belong to them, and they do belong to them. So they've a vested right in those patents. There are two things Biden could do. One would be to pull in the the, the CEOs, uh, Moderna and Pfizer, to mm-hmm. the White House and say, look if you guys don't agree to waive your patents on on these COVID vaccinations, mm-hmm. I can repeal that order as to all future pharmaceutical products, mm-hmm. which would be worth tons of money to these people over the years. Mm-hmm. And that might work. The alternative would be for Congress to step in and modify Reagan's executive order to contain the same safeguards uh, that they have with respect to buy dole for the universities and small businesses and apply that to these uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers and have the ability to step in where, where health is at stake.
2: And so, in in short, the, uh, the, the the horses out of the barn or whatever that is when it comes to COVID, we've already sort of made an agreement with these companies. Uh, it's difficult to claw back uh, the, the the profits or the, uh, the patent rights. Uh, but certainly going forward, Joe Biden could sign an executive order that basically repeals uh, what Ronald Reagan did in 1987 uh, to prevent this sort of mess from continuing, as if Joe Biden doesn't have enough on his plate already. But I hope he will consider it and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this experiment if you will, in uh, state uh, socialized produced medications out here in California works under Gavin Newsom with the uh, creation of insulin uh, all fascinating stuff great work Ernie a uh, really interesting research I will of course uh, point folks to both of your articles at, uh, at Bradblog.com, uh, the more recent As COVID Continues, Reagan's gift to Big Pharma is still endangering global health. And from a week or so ago, California's new insulin plan, a shot in the arm towards socialized medications, ending patent abuse. Ernie Canning, you can find him, uh, as I said, at Bradblog.com and on the Twitters as well. He is Can the number four, I-N-G, C-A-N-N, the number four. I-N-G. Don't ask me why, but that's where you'll find him at Twitter. Ernie Canning, thanks a bunch, my friend. Look forward to talking to you soon. You're more than welcome, Brad. Thank
1: you. And that's all for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks so much to our guests, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition for Good Governance and Ernest A. Canning, legal analyst at bradblog.com. And of course, to you for spending part of your day or night with us. You can download any Bradcast anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is a service made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to stay completely independent Dependent on your public airwaves that's bradblog.com slash donate drop us an email if you like at bradcast at bradblog.com and follow us on the twitters and the facebook's at the BradBlog. blog we'll see you there until we see you here next time i'm bradcast producer desi doyan thanks for listening as brad always says good luck world